Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And we're in the studio together. I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow in the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Sharon, it's great to be in the studio together again. Anna this is amazing. It's the first time for, I think, 18 months? It's been a long time. Okay, actually looking at each other straight at straight at each other what an amazing experience it, it it's is really great very exciting we are masked up people so we 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 yeah are, yep. are not smiling at each other but we are looking meaningfully but at one with another our eyes, <laughs> with our eyes Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by PolicyForum.net. We're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The Crawford School offers graduate degrees in executive education programs in public policy, applied economics, environmental management, national security, and much, much more. If you're interested, please check out crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Today, Anna Greta, we've we've got a, a special issue for uh, International Women's Day, which was on Tuesday of this week. Mm. And we're going to be looking at Australia's social security system, which has long been criticised for some of its major flaws, including the very low rate of benefits, but also for the gendered nature of that system and the way it impacts particularly on low-income women in ways that are very negative. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, the net replacement rate the proportion of previous in-work income that's maintained on a country's unemployment benefit was the lowest in the OECD. The serious health and economic implications of the pandemic shone a light on Australia's social security system as millions of Australians face the prospect of reduced hours, joblessness or ongoing unemployment or underemployment. And for a brief period, the introduction of temporary measures of the coronavirus supplement offered relief to people receiving benefits. But that relief, as we know, was short-lived. In 2021, the rate was again dropped, albeit with a, a very modest increase of just $25 a week. And that was the first time we saw an increase to Social Security payments in over two decades. Today on the pod, we want to talk about where we are now 
And as I said, having just marked International Women's Day, we want to focus particularly on some of the gendered aspects of our social security system. We have two fantastic guests with us to consider the impact of Australia's welfare system on women in particular and what policy measures governments could and should be considering to improve the lives of women and indeed of all Australians. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce our guests? Mm, I'm so much looking forward to today's conversation and it's a great way, I think, for us to mark International Women's Day. We've got two fabulous guests with us. Elise Klein, Associate Professor at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. Elise's research interests focus on development policy and social policy with a specific interest in work, redistribution, decoloniality and care. Her two books include Developing Minds, Psychology, Neoliberalism and Power and Reading Amata Sen's Inequality Reexamined Study Book. Elise has held roles in the UN Secretary-General's High-Level Panel on Women's Economic Development and the Human Rights Committee within the United Nations General Assembly. She was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, or OAM, in 2019. It's great to have Elise with us. And beside Elise is Kay Cook. Kay is Professor and Associate Dean of Research in the School of Social Sciences, Media, Film and Education at Swinburne University. Her work explores new and developing social policies such as welfare to work, child support and childcare policies transform relationships between individuals, families and the state. Her upcoming book, The Failure of Child Support, Gendered Systems of Inaccessibility, Inaction and Irresponsibility, will be released on the 11th of April this year. Welcome, Elise and Kay. Thank you. Great to be here. To start today's conversation, I really wanted to get both of your thoughts on where Australia's social security system is at and whether it's serving people in the way that it should be. I think it depends what part of the sort of social security system, because there's parts that definitely are working for people. If you think of, you know, how it relates to the tax and transfer system, you know, I think, you know, it's important to take the whole picture and think about how there are many people that are doing well in terms of, you know, the middle class and transfers that are supporting wealthier people. But for people that are falling through the cracks, it's not working. And in fact, you know, people are arguing and putting forward the idea that it's by design. This whole idea of mutual obligation and the kinds of conditionalities that are put on people to uh, compel them into the labour market completely misses the reality of why people may not be employed in the first place. And, you know, in the week of um, International Women's Day, a big chunk of that is because people are doing unpaid care work. So they are working, but it's unpaid. Uh, And some people rely on the social security system to support themselves and their families while they're doing that care work. But uh, those payments are dramatically low, but also some people are are also subject to mutual obligations, which we see such as uh, work for the doll, but also parents, the parents next program. So, you know, that end of the system, uh, it's definitely not working in ways that are, you know, really detrimental to families and people's well-being. Kay, what are your thoughts on whether our social security system is working in the way that it should? I agree with everything that Elise has said, for one, which is always a good position to take. And second, like I think she raises some really good points around the gender of the social security system, that it, it is at that 
that lower end of the income spectrum where women are much more likely to be concentrated. They're likely to be working in uh, insecure, unpredictable, casual work. They're much more likely to have to take time off work if children are sick or to care for elderly parents or the disabled. And yet our social security system is extremely complex and extremely cumbersome. And that managing the social security system in itself is another full-time job on top of women's unpaid care work and any paid employment that they're undertaking. So it it really compounds rather than alleviates women's disadvantage. I was really fascinated, and I think we've, we've talked a little bit on the pod over the last year or so about what happened in 2020 when the social security safety net really improved for a large proportion of our population. So I wonder if you'd like to offer some reflections on the way in which our social security system has changed during the pandemic. Just to, to start, I mean, it, it was really an important moment because the government removed the mutual obligation uh, requirement and also increased the payment for many people, not everybody, but many people got this extra supplement, which was really substantive. And myself and Kay and, and our colleagues were able to do a little bit of research to understand what that meant for people. Uh, and people reported, you know, really significant changes in, in their lives that, you know, they didn't have to ration food and medicine, that they didn't have to deal with the burden of being chased by Centrelink and mutual obligation providers, that they felt dignified again and that the people's mental health improved. So, I mean, it was a very significant moment, but it also exposes just how how, you know, the status quo is just such a horrible experience, such a hostile experience for people. And unfortunately, that is where we have returned back to. So whilst that was a really important moment that the government, just as quickly as it implemented it, almost, well, not quite, has flipped back to a a situation that continues to be hostile for people. And I think that brief time when we had the relaxation of mutual obligations and an increase in payments actually showed us that the social security system can provide social security for people, that it it actually functioned as we as a society would expect it to function, that it provided security to people and it provided them with some independence and it improved their well-being. Whereas at the moment we have a system that it provides the the bare minimum of financial resources to people while contributing great and additional harms at the same time. So I think in the current situation we're seeing with bushfires and floods and natural disasters, how will people manage under those circumstances? When life is disrupted and we have these great disruptions, the social security system is meant to come in and provide support. And the way we currently structure our system is unless there's great changes implemented by the government, the system is not capable of supporting people. The point that, that you made, Elise, about the system being by design is really interesting to reflect on here because we we don't have a system that has accidentally grown up the way it is. It it, it is designed. And you know, to me, one of the, the really extraordinary things is that we know that one of the main drivers of child poverty is the very low rate at which benefits are set. And we saw in uh, 2020 that that could be turned around. And yet, 
as a country, we were prepared to accept a policy decision that meant that children would be plunged back into poverty. And I find that an extraordinary decision that was made and an, and an extraordinary decision that um, has been accepted by the community. But I really wanted to pick up and get your thoughts on the issue of care, and, and you both raised that. And I'd like to tease this out a little bit more about how care for, for children but for others in the community is is valued within the social security system. Elise, maybe you could start. I know you've done quite a bit of work around Parents Next and thinking about the, the mutual obligations that are bound up in that program. Can you talk us through how care is thought about and valued in the social security system, but within particularly programs like Parents Next? Yeah, I mean, I would probably say it's not valued at all. And what is valued is, you know, this idea of work as employment. That is the prevailing underpinning expectation. So if you're not in employment, then um, you are subject to the social security system and therefore you're subject to all these hostile conditions because the assumption is, is that you've done something wrong or there's something of an issue and the hostility is about compelling you back into work. Now, the of course, the issue is there are many reasons why people cannot be in employment. One is that you know, a lot of employment can be also hostile. And um, and if you're a single mum and caring for your children, finding work that fits around all of the responsibilities you have to your children makes um, holding down a full-time job extremely, extremely hard. So you're often subjected to very precarious work and precarious labour that can be quite hostile in itself. The other issue is that people have their, all of this caring work that they're already doing. So, you know, we have such a hyper-focus on understanding work only as employment that we completely devalue how important care work is. And a lot of that in Australia is unpaid. And if it's paid, it's often underpaid. But you see, we see how important this work is all through COVID. The whole, you know, the economy and society really, really rested on all the care work that people were doing to keep surviving through through the pandemic. So, you know, care is extremely important, but yet we don't value it. And in social in the social security system, people who are doing this work, uh, there's this assumption that if you're, you know, you're not in employment, you're not doing anything, but actually through research with people who are put on Parents Next, but also people who have all experiences with this social security. People do all sorts of important work for community, looking after people, uh, volunteering, looking after people who are not well or, you know, may have a disability or the elder. People do all sorts of work, but yet people are sort of written off as there's this extraordinary stigma, you know, around being lazy or unproductive. And it is just simply not the case. But yet people are subjected to this very hostile experience um, that completely devalues the work that they're doing. And Kay, I, I, I guess we, we know that the, the nature of care work is, is highly gendered. How does that play out in terms of people's experiences of, of managing unpaid care, but, but also engaging with the social security system when they need it? I think the gender of unpaid care work is, as Ali said, the invisible work that keeps our society going, but it's also able to be then ignored by policy systems and technical processes where it is just assumed that that work happens 
invisibly and effortlessly. And the single parents who live in poverty are extremely time poor and extremely pressured. And the way that these policies have come to be introduced and not challenged by mainstream society is that women are busy doing care work and all of the other things that they need to do, as well as paid employment, that there isn't the means to to rise up against these, whereas people with access to power and access to resources are much more organised and able to make their case. So I think it's, it's because women are, are tied up in these relations of care that they've been able to be sort of victimised by the system. And I think that child support, which is one of my research areas, provides a really good example of that where 90% of the receiving parents are women, yet whenever we have an inquiry or submissions being made about policy reform, it's overwhelmingly higher sort of upper middle class, uh, non-resident parents who are able to organise and provide submissions. And then that leads to policy changes to meet those needs. So I think fixing this sort of social issue requires social interventions across all levels around the types of evidence that we collect. Centrelink isn't collecting the data on women's lived experience. It's collecting data on hours worked, appointments missed. That's not what women's reality is. And so they're silenced at every turn. And so this gender of the system pervades everything. It pervades the opportunities for voice, the opportunities for evidence, who's sitting around the table making decisions about policy, about technical systems. And so I think it's a real uphill battle in terms of having all of that changed. Can I also say that I think what Kay's points are really, really important. And it made me think too about this really, I think, landmark study coming out of June Oscar's office at the Australian Human Rights Commission. She's the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commissioner in Indigenous care, looking at Indigenous women's experiences and All through that report, uh, women are talking about care and how often a lot of the care that people are having to do, First Nations people are having to do, women, is in response to the sort of settler colonial context. So, you know, all the harm that has been done and is being done to Indigenous communities, you know, it's often Indigenous women and, and their work and care work that is having to mop up the trauma, the damage, the disconnection the angst of the settler colonial process. So there's there's important sort of dimensions to care um, in Australia too. And I think that work coming from June Oscar's office is really profound and important in sharing another very important side to, to the importance of care, but also what it means in a settler colonial context. Anna Greta and I have a, a hashtag value caring that we have been promoting over the past year or 18 months and I think you know what you have summarized there or what you've you've shared with the series is exactly what we are trying to trigger a conversation around with, with that hashtag and it's it was beautifully framed I wanted to come back later Kay, to, to some of your work on income support but be, before we we do that I, I was interested in hearing your thoughts on a piece by Kristen O'Connell from the anti-poverty center that was published in the Guardian on International Women's Day 
Day this week. And that described Australia's welfare system as the greatest threat to women, arguing that it's imbued with misogyny and traps women in unsafe situations. And Kirsten argued that there is no pathway to safety, respect or equity for all women without a robust social safety net to protect those who are most disadvantaged. And of course, this is a particularly an issue when women are in contexts of domestic and family violence. I'd, I'd just be interested in hearing your thoughts on that argument that Kristen's put forward and whether the extent to which Australia's social security system is undermining women's safety. Elise, would you like to, to comment on that? Yeah, I think the points that Kristen makes in that piece are really, really critical and extremely timely, that there are important conversations being held at high levels around women's safety and on many fronts. I think what gets missed is how the relationship with the social security system is making people, women, uh, further unsafe. You know, and I think Kristen's sort of piece is really drawing the attention of how women are not just a, a homogenous group, that we need to understand the class, the racial, the various dimensions to which um, structure women's experience. And the social security system by design is harming women in many different ways. And particularly the hostility, of course, deters people from going to seek support from the social security system, maybe if they're trying to leave a difficult situation. But talk, thinking about The Maid, that important show that's been aired on, I think, Netflix recently really shows how um, hostile a social security system can be for someone that's trying to, to escape a difficult situation. But also the experience of the social security system is extremely traumatic, being hounded by uh, Centrelink or, or mutual obligation providers um, and the kind of control and the stigma and just the general hostility makes people feel like it's it's like another violent relationship, which is um, particularly what um, people have, have talked about in, in some of the research I have done. I think, though, what Kristen is really putting forward as a challenge to sort of the broader feminist movement is to think about the ways in which unemployed women or women that are subject to social security often get missed out in the conversation around safety and how unsafe their situation is by design because of the designs around the social security system. And if we if we take any principles around designing systems with a trauma-informed lens would be useful for the social security system. The system is not designed for the most vulnerable people. If we look at sort of the the statistics on who in our society is most vulnerable to abuse or to um, poverty, Indigenous populations, newly arrived migrant populations, people with lower levels of English, the women with acquired brain injuries. And yet our social security system is so complicated and so impersonal that these people are going to be excluded from even entering the system. So I completely agree with what Elise is saying around we need to keep recipients in mind and the trauma that the system can use, but there's a whole population of people who can't even enter the system because it's not culturally or administratively safe for them to do so. It's not possible to go in and fill out the forms or to to 
answer the questions in a way that makes sense to their reality. And it, it's very much structured on an individual, middle-class, white male perspective. And that's what really undermines the entire system. Like all of the forms assume a very high level of technical bureaucratic competence, which completely sits outside the experience of current users of the system and people who would need the system but can't access it or can't see its relevance to them. Elise and Kay, this is such an important conversation that we're having. We're going to take just a very short break now, but we will be right back to continue talking through these issues. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Elise Klein and Kay Cook. We're talking about Australia's social security system and the impact that it has on women particularly. We've been reflecting just before the break on a great piece that was written in The Guardian recently discussing the impact of our social security system on women. Elise, you've done quite a lot of work on the cashless debit card and that was raised in that Guardian piece. I wonder if you might give us some background on your work in the area and particularly the impact that the cashless debit card program is having on women. Yeah, I did a piece of research with, um, it was an invited piece of research with organisations uh, in the East Kimberley when the card was being talked about to be rolled out. So I so I was able to watch the rollout of the card and then follow it um, ever since, particularly in the East Kimberley. And, you know, in just sort of linked to the conversation we've had, what is interesting about the cashless debit card is policymakers promised that it would do all sorts of things. And um, one of those things was to increase women's safety in various ways. And a lot of my research was interview research and people talked about how it it wasn't um, making people more safe at at all. It was making people more vulnerable because it was quarantining the amount of money people had. Uh, People found it hard to manage their finances. So the assumption is, of course, that people weren't managing their money, but they actually were. They just had very little amounts of it, which is, you know, a major part of the social security system that the payments are very very low, putting people often below the poverty line, putting this cashless debit card on top of that uh, made money management really hard. So put people in even more insecure situations, made it hard to buy things for kids, to get things that the household needed. I mean, the other sort of part of my sort of research was trying to sort of think about, well, what has it meant for, because it was a promise that it would make women more safe and, you know, a long lengthy process on following and trying to get 
get data through freedom of information on reported amounts of people who uh, had reported DV incidences showed that that wasn't the case at all, wasn't making people more safe. And that was something because in the footnotes of the evaluations of the government that we're using was also alerting that there was maybe a possible issue around the safety of women. I, I was really concerned that the government wasn't looking more into it, so hence why I went through freedom of information. So that's something that needs way more understanding and way more research, but it is a very big concern because it's a program that continues to be rolled out and there is already red signs or big question marks around what it is meaning for women, but yet it still gets rolled out without further attention to what's actually happening for people. Kay, before we we went to the break, you mentioned income support and and uh, child support, you know, in context of a family breakdown. And I wanted to ask you about your forthcoming book, which is called The Failure of Child Support. And in that book, you've done interviews across 16 different countries on child support payments. And you chart the, what's, what's described as the demise of child support as a feminist intervention. Can you tell us a little bit about that research that you did and what you found when you looked at, at the way child support is or isn't working? I sure can. Um, to start in Australia, I think the child support has held up as a real win for Femocrats. So Meredith Edwards was one of the primary, so, people working behind the scenes to implement the child support policy and it was seen as a real win for women when it was brought in. And ever since then in Australia, it's been systematically undermined. So the the key features of tying it to the tax system so that there could be accurate records of parents' income was almost immediately done away with, as was sort of compulsory sort of direct transfers of payments. It was made a voluntary system. So in Australia, we've really gone out of our way to dismantle any of the pieces of the system that would make it effective. So that's really what has prompted the cross-national research because I'm motivated by spite. (laughs) And whenever I'd go to these international meetings of child support policymakers, Australia is held up as one of the best systems in the world. And that just astounded me that our system is designed to look like we have a system, but it is in no way designed to work. And the policy changes that we've had in the last few years have all been to financially punish low-income women. So most of Australia's caseload transfers payments privately And that money doesn't even need to be received. It's just what is meant to be paid that is then used to reduce women's family tax benefits as income. So our system is completely designed to save the government money. And it's only by luck or goodwill of the paying parent that funds are actually transferred. And unless your ex-partner has the misfortune of being in waged employment, then the system can work quite well. But we see that jobs are becoming increasingly casualised. We have high rates of um, 
the growing sort of self-employment, subcontracting people that would otherwise be in waged employment now being regarded as self-employed. So these are all further things that make the child support system not work. And so then I wanted to look internationally of, well, if Australia is one of the best systems, what on earth is going on elsewhere? And regardless of the system, so I conducted interviews across a wide range of countries to really tease out the boundaries of what this is and isn't. And so looking at countries like Nigeria or um, Peru and comparing those features to countries like Norway or Germany or the UK or the US, and irrespective of context, the system is designed not to work, that there's always an out and there's so one chapter describes sort of the leaky pipeline of child support where either the barriers are so high that women just can't get into the system. You need to pay for lawyers. You need to pay for a paternity test. And that in a lot of countries, we don't have that in Australia, but a lot of countries that just prevents women even accessing the system or you need to drive to the city or get there somehow to show up at a, an agency and wait for hours to be able to lodge the form. So it, it doesn't let people in, but then when people enter the system, that in no way means that payments will be forthcoming. The system's set up to make orders, but there's very few instances where payments then follow from those orders other than father's goodwill. If, if fathers want to pay and contribute to their children's upbringing, then the system works perfectly fine. But it completely ignores the reality of domestic violence, of parental hostilities post-separation, uh, and the income and power differential between parents. And so even Nordic countries and Northern European countries have guaranteed payments where the recipient mother will receive not always the entitled amount, but some amount from the government. But that just absolves paying parents from having to pay. So there's never a system that actually requires fathers to meet their obligations under the rights of the child. Thank you for mapping that out. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. And I think it, it speaks not just to the gendered nature of the social security and the child support systems, but the deeply gendered nature of our societies and the kinds of assumptions and discriminatory patterns that, that underpin our societies. And, you know, you, you finished by mentioning the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And of course, what is often lost within all of this is children's human rights and the way in which these systems fail children or simply render them completely invisible. I'm just going to change tack just slightly on this, and we might talk a little bit about the universal basic income. It's a it's a topic that's come up uh, on the pod a number of times in the last couple of years. We've interviewed Guy Standing, but it's also interesting how often it comes up in other contexts. It comes up in the concepts of caring, it comes up in, in gender, and it comes up in the environment, thinking about climate change and how we might contend from that from a societal perspective. Elise, you've advocated for a universal basic income. How would that change the lives of women, and, and in fact men as well, who are currently reliant on welfare benefits or are working in low-paid or precarious forms of employment? 
Thank you. And thanks for the question. Can I just do a little plug? Because we actually have the Global Basic Income Congress coming to Australia later this year. So abstracts are out if people would like to get involved and come along in September in Queensland or it'll be online. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about basic income for some some time. And, you know, I think going back to the earlier conversation we had around, you know, what happened in 2020 when they removed the welfare conditionality or they suspended the welfare conditionality and increased people's payments, that was a kind of, it was a move towards what a basic income could be. And, you know, I I mean, both Kay and I have have looked at that and, and, and saw all the extraordinary things that happened for people's lives in that short time that people had those measures. So I think that's the kind of impact that we would see with a, ba- a basic income, that people's standard of living would increase, that uh, people would feel more dignified, that they could focus on things that are important. Uh, we saw also in that study that people with more time and more resource behind them were able to work towards how they can better engage with the labour market all sorts of things. But I mean, these are all dependent on what the basic income would look like. So of course, you know, the rate of payment matters, who it includes. So various models, you know, I mean, there's the universal basic income that would include everybody, but there's other models that would target specific cohorts. You know, so there's a lot of questions around what the actual basic income would look like. The other piece that that a basic income and important in the conversation is its integration into the tax and transfer system. And you know, whilst we saw what we did in 2020 and it made, you know, these removal of conditionalities in people's lives was helpful, we also saw in Australia in continuing growth of inequality in terms of home ownership, um, in terms of precarious work. The very, very wealthy continue to get very, very wealthy through the pandemic. And so whilst we can think about, you know, basic income important in terms of individuals, we've got to think about how that can be also used to tackle broader questions of inequality. And that's the importance of how it is integrated into the tax and transfer system. Mm. I have to say that working as a doctor in, in for patients of mine who live in a precarious situation, watching the health benefits of that period of time where financial stress was taken out of the list of daily challenges, it was just an extraordinary thing to witness. And then the undoing has been an extraordinarily challenging thing, again, for me to be watching. But I'm really interested in how providing a better safety net across society can make a difference. And, and I'm particularly interested in how it, it changes how we value care. What what do you think about the relationship we have in terms of the government approach to how we value care in our society and whether the basic income structure helps us with that? I mean, it can, it can, but it's not necessarily guaranteed. And and so the basic income could never be implemented on its own and it's not a silver bullet. So in terms of sort of valuing care, you know, other aspects would need to be supported alongside of that and specifically around challenging gendered norms. You know, Kay, Kay before was talking about the need for men to meet their obligations with payments for their children. That behaviour is, is regulated by gendered norms that there's even a possibility that there's a way out for men not to do care work in that respect for their children, that it falls on uh, women and that is 
regulated through gendered norms. So there's a need to socialise the idea of care so that everybody can feel that they can take on and engage in that work. And that would be important so that, you know, if a basic income was uh, implemented, that it wouldn't just be something to prop up women doing unpaid care work whilst, sorry to be a bit crude, but while men go and do the jobs that are paid work that, that may be out there, that we'd need to use it as a way to rework how our relationship is with unpaid care and care more broadly. That would be important. This is, is a conversation that I think both Anna Greta and I would like to continue for, for several hours, but we're going to have to, to start to draw this to a close. And as we close, I, I just wanted to ask you both about a, another issue that's part of this, but we sometimes don't talk about when we're talking about social security, and that's basic services and particularly universal basic services. And in Australia, this is somewhere, where, an area where we're not doing terribly well at the moment, certainly in terms of educational equity, we're in the bottom third of OECD countries. Um, we have real challenges in terms of people being able to access health care and particularly dental care. But I wanted to hear both of your thoughts on where universal basic services fit into this discussion and how important universal access to services is to ensuring that women particularly and women on low incomes particularly have the support that they need. I think the Australia's sort of laggard position in providing these universal services really shows the framing of our social security system as well. The fact that education is so highly sort of stratified, that childcare is not publicly available, that we have this privatised system, uh, that dental care is excluded, that sort of mental health is excluded, that it's not sort of universally freely accessible. All of these pieces fit together and they all contribute to whether people are just functioning for the economy or whether they're able to look after themselves and their families and their communities. And so it's, this is a whole package that Elise was talking about earlier where it isn't just a piecemeal approach where you can do one solution and change some technical features of the social security system. These pieces all reinforce and complement each other. And the other real elephant in the room is public housing and just how far we are behind and how neglected that space has been. Elise, did you want to, to add anything around that, that issue of, of basic services? Oh, just to, to support everything Kay has said, absolutely that, you know, a basic income, absolutely. But a basic income has to, if it if it is to do and, and to work towards, you know, a better world, it has to come alongside important moves towards um, universal basic services also. That is absolutely part of it. And, you know, people then say, well, how do you um, afford all of that? Um, you know, this question of cost comes up, but I think it goes to the heart of what Kay is talking about is what we value. And we're not valuing the importance of of caring for each other and having a caring society and, and having the infrastructure, the caring infrastructure there to support people to flourish and to grow um, and to be connected and to look after the environment and the world that we're living in. The structures in which we're living do not support that. And these are choices. So we go back to that question by design. These are choices that are being made around buying various other aspects for the budget, but not 
valuing these important aspects that are so fundamental, as, as Kay says. We will have to to draw this conversation to a close now. I think that is such a powerful point at which to close this conversation and hopefully to create openings for ongoing conversations. We have work ahead of us in Australia if we are to have a society that values care, values human beings, and indeed values our planet and our environment and our communities. But the conversation that we've just had, I think, helps us to to think about the direction that we need to take. So Elise Klein, Kay Cook, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Anna Greta, that was a, a fantastic conversation. There's so much that I'm thinking about and taking away from that. Um, and I must say, Kay's comment about a system that is designed to look like a system but not designed to work was such a powerful comment. Mm. And, I, and it, it explains, I think, where we find ourselves mm. in so many issues at the moment in relation to social policy and social welfare, but, but arguably across climate change and a whole range of other issues. Absolutely. I think there's quite a few people around the east coast of Australia who are reflecting on that at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, tremendously challenging time. And again, we see this theme of if we look at the role of government, the role of policy through a lens of how we can care better for ourselves, for our family and community, for the world around us, we can see that practical change is really possible and in a way that impacts in a tremendously positive way in lives. Yes, yes, I think that's right. And, you know, both Elise and Kay made the point that, you know, this is also about what we value both in our everyday lives, but also at a macro level and how we think about issues of equity and, and redistribution. And I, I was struck looking at Forbes magazine's rich list just, just recently and the number of billionaires increased dramatically over the pandemic and the wealth of current billionaires globally mm. increased phenomenally. And so we, we do see our ourselves in a system in Australia, but globally, where a very small minority of people are benefiting from that system in extraordinary ways, mm. but many who are being left behind. And we really do need to fundamentally rethink what it is we value. Mm. And we have to put care at the centre of that, because that is what shapes our lives and makes our lives worthwhile. Could not agree more. Great conversation today. We will leave a link to the book and to all of the other publications that we've mentioned during today's conversation in the show notes on policyforum.net. So check out that website. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. You know that we value your feedback and you can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS or Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We have a Facebook group, which is Policy Forum Pod, and you can type that into the search bar and find that community. We will, of course, be back next week. So from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, hashtag value caring and bye bye for now. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.